Well, 1 Timothy chapter 5 is our text for tonight as we continue in our study together of Paul's first letter to Timothy. We are in chapter 5. Let me read verses 17 to the end of the chapter for us. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and beginning in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let's pray. Father, as always, we come now to your word together. We come together with what I hope is one desire and one mind, and that is to hear from your word and to understand your word and to apply your words to our hearts into our lives. And so we pray your blessing over this moment of the preaching of your word for your people. We pray that you would bless each of our ears by what we hear, each of our hearts by what it does to us as it conforms us, molds us, and shapes us more into the image of Christ. We pray for this over us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've mentioned uh, before in our study of 1 Timothy, since it is essentially a treatise to Timothy on how to uh, organize the church, how the church is to function, what the church is to do, and what the church is should be. And I've mentioned that one of the unfortunate fruits of the modern uh, fads and various movements in modern American evangelicalism has been a misunderstanding and a wrong evaluation of the role of the elder in the church. The elder, of course, is... This word is used interchangeably in Scripture with the concept of the shepherd or the pastor, uh, elder, overseer, um, as you know, the leadership of the church, or a part at least of the leadership of the church, with of course uh, the office of deacon as well. You remember we looked in detail at Paul's instructions to Timothy for the office of the elder and the qualifications uh, for that office. That was back in chapter uh, 3. This is, uh, this is the office of elder. It is a specific office given to the church by the Lord for leading, for teaching, for providing the people of God with sound doctrine. And through that provision, leading them in their spiritual walk and in their spiritual growth. And in our modern times, on the other hand, what we find many times is an evaluation of elder or pastor or preacher that has to do with metrics that sound more like corporate America than they do about the church of Jesus Christ and certainly has more to do with corporate America than biblical fidelity. I've mentioned before that 
inevitably one of the first questions I'm asked when someone hears perhaps for the first time that I'm actually a pastor of a church is, how many people do you have? How many come on Sundays? Everybody wants to know that first and foremost over anything else. A lot of times, even before they know what denomination we are, what we believe, why we call ourselves a church, it's always about what kind of crowd do you get? It's just kind of the air we breathe in America. And so ministerial success becomes tied to numbers, number of attendees, number of baptisms, number of income into the church, number of programs or events that happen throughout the years of the church. It's a terrible weight on many leaders in the church. It causes exhaustion, discouragement, stress, and eventually for many of them, burnout as they actually eventually walk away from the ministry altogether due to the pressure of it. But what is the Lord's measure for a leader of the church? How would the Lord grade them? What kind of considerations would the Lord have if He were giving an employee evaluation, for lack of a better word? These are important questions, not only for the pastor or the aspiring pastor, elder, overseer, uh, to consider and be able to answer, but there are important questions for the church itself to be able to answer as well. For the church itself is the body that appoints its leaders and raises them up and brings them in. It informs the church on how they should consider their pastors and elders. And not only does it help the church know how to uh, evaluate or consider their pastors and elders, but it also helps the church to know how they can care for their pastors, how they can care for their elders, how they can care for leadership in the church and minister to them. So often people have the view of a pastor, well, they're there to shepherd, they're there to lead, they're there to minister to, to me, they're there to minister to us, they're there to serve us, and that is certainly true. But they're also a part of the church. And they're also there to be served as well. They're there to be ministered to. They're there to be encouraged as well. And that comes under the privilege and burden of the church as a whole. And that's the theme, by the way, if you think about chapter 5, that is the theme of chapter 5. How to care for people in the church. And we looked in great detail at Paul's instructions to the church about how to care for widows in the church. In fact, we spent three Sundays on that. Now, I think it was three sermons that we spent on how it is that the church can and should care for widows uh, within the fellowship of the church. And so to make sure we're balanced, we're only going to talk about pastors and elders for one sermon. So we've got three on widows and one on me, right? I figured that would be a good... I, didn't want to, I can't spend six weeks on it or y'all might think I'm trying to get a point across. So now he's going to explain to the church how the church can care for its leaders, how the church can care for its elders, and how the church can care... For his overseers. And there are three things in particular that Paul tells Timothy that he should teach the church in general or in regard to uh, the elders among them. And the first way that the church can care for its leaders, care for its elders, is by providing for them. By providing for them. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. Now, what Paul says here to Timothy is pretty clear. 
The elders of the church are worthy of honor, and those who rule well should be considered worthy of honor. In fact, he says, they should be worthy of double honor. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But the point, first off, to remember and understand is that the office of elder, the office of pastor, the office of overseer, however it might be translated in yours, and it's translated a bunch of different ways depending on your uh, translation, that office is worthy of honor. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says in verse 12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews thirteen seven, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then he says in verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Paul says the same thing here to Timothy. And in saying this to Timothy, the expectation is that Timothy would teach this to the church. Let those who rule well be worthy, be considered rather worthy of double honor. We should note that Paul says here, those who rule well, those who rule well should be considered worthy of double, of double honor. Now, how do you know if an elder is an elder who rules well? How do you know if he fits the criteria of ruling well and therefore should be considered worthy of double honor? Well, the answer is that he's an elder not to put too fine a point on it, who meets the qualifications of chapter 3. That's how you know whether or not he is someone who uh, rules well. Does he exemplify the kind of leader that Paul has already outlined? Does he exemplify the kind of life that Paul has outlined for the basic qualifications to even aspire to the office of overseer? And if he does, if the outcome of his life and the outcome of his walk of faith is one of integrity, is one of faithfulness, is one of strength, then honor him. You say, well, what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't uh, properly meet the qualifications for chapter 3? Well, then the question comes up, should that guy be a leader in the church in the first place? I mean, if he doesn't meet the basic qualifications for the role then should he even be in the role for leadership in the church? The office of elder has an inherent worthiness to be honored. That's why only selecting those who meet the Lord's qualifications uh, should be chosen for it. Only those who meet his qualifications should be chosen for it. I remember one time, this was many, many, many years ago, I was talking to somebody and they mentioned some things that were going on in their church, uh, some changes that were happening. And this particular person, she, uh, she didn't like a couple of the changes. Some of it had to do with leadership and some things that were going on there and some things they were voting to do uh, for the leadership. And she said, you know, I don't really mind the changes themselves. I don't mind it because I actually I like our, our pastor. I like our leaders. But I'm worried that... At some point in the future, it won't be him anymore. And it'll be some new Joe Blow 
who's come along and is the leader of the church. And what are the implications of doing this now if we got some, and this was her words, if some Joe Blow comes along and now he's our pastor? And I said, well, first off, he wouldn't be some Joe Blow. He would be your pastor. So let's kind of get that thinking out of our head, right? Like, you know, he, he would be your pastor. Be very careful with that kind of thinking. The office itself deserves more respect and honor than some sort of crass expression like that, right? He also adds here, Paul does, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That is a double honor kind of elder, the kind who rule well by the qualifications in chapter 3, and also labor in preaching and teaching the Word of God. You remember in those um, qualifications for the elder and the deacon, Really, the only marked difference between the two lists was that elders should be those who are apt to teach. And deacons essentially had the same exact list of moral qualifications, except it's considered that the elders of the church are considered those who will primarily lead by preaching and teaching the Word of God. They're the kind who bring the Word of God to bear before the people of God for instruction and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, as he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. The kind of men who set the gospel forth to be believed and preach in the power of the Spirit. I find it telling that this is the thing that Paul draws out about the ministry of the church in order to determine whether or not an elder is considered worthy of a double portion of honor from the church. It's not many other things that an elder, a pastor, should rightly be doing. Should be loving the flock and shepherding the flock and guiding the flock. All of those things are certainly true. Praying for the flock, so forth and so on. But here I think Paul is giving us a very insightful observation that the Word of God is the foundation for any and all ministry in the church. And the pulpit is the foundation for any and all leadership of the pastor in the church. A faithful and well-executed ministry will first primarily be built on the foundation of the Word. And it is to these kind of men, this kind of person, this kind of elder that Paul said should be considered worthy of double honor. Now, how can the church honor the elder? Well, he says, let him be considered worthy not only of honor, but of double honor. So how can the elders show, the, or how can the church rather, show their respect? How can the church honor their elders? Well, that's verse 18. Because, or for, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. How can the church honor its elders? How can the church honor its leaders? And the answer is it can honor them through provision, by providing for them, by giving to them. It's the same way we already said about widows in the previous passage, honor widows who are truly widows. And we talked a lot about what it can mean to honor them. It can mean a lot of different things. And one of the ways was in perhaps even a financial means to honor widows. And here he's talking about the same thing when it comes to the leaders in the church. And you remember, like in the book of Acts, whenever they first established the, the very first deacons, why was it? 
It was so that the apostles, the leaders in the church, could devote themselves to the study of Scripture, to the Word, and to prayer. It was so that they wouldn't find themselves caught up in the mundane administration of the daily daily food, of the daily meal. It's not that that wasn't important. It was important enough that they established specially called gifted men to do that and spirit-led men to do that, so it was important. But it did not need to be the primary goal, the primary function, something that distracted the apostles from the ministry of the Word and from prayer. And so here we see sort of the same thing. Honor can, of course, be respect in an abstract sense, but there's a tangible way to do that, and it's through provision, a gift of honor to the elder that is commiserate with the elder's needs. Here Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25.4. That's the first one he quotes. And he also quotes that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now in 1 Corinthians 9, he is talking about his rights as an apostle, which would include the right to financial provision. But then he further says in 1 Corinthians 9.14, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But then Paul goes on to say that he actually lays aside that right because he doesn't want to be incum- become an encumbrance to the church. And so you'll remember on his journeys, Paul would do tent making and things and kind of support himself because he didn't want to be a burden uh, to the church. But the point is clear that the elder of the church is worthy of the honor of being provided for. So that, let's, let's turn it on its head a little bit, it's an honor for the church to provide for its pastor. It should be considered an honor for the church to provide for its leaders and to provide for its elders. It's a privilege to do this for them. It's a joy to do this for the leaders of the church. That's the way it should be thought of. And I'm sure you've talked to people before. I know that I have not in this church, but I have talked to people and had a kind of conversation with people both before and after becoming a pastor where it was clear that they did not consider it an honor to provide for a pastor. They did not consider it a privilege and a joy to sacrificially and generously provide for their pastor. They looked at it as something other than that. They looked at it as a a burden on the church, a weight on the church, something that they shouldn't have to do. Perhaps something that the pastor was taking too much. The pastor was being paid too much. The pastor's compensation was a little too much. Which is an unfortunate thing to think in the church. For all of the Scriptures that talk about generosity, here we even see the concept of generosity of the church toward the leadership of the church as well. Paul quotes another Scripture. He says... uh, when he says uh, the laborer deserves his wages. Now, this is interesting because that phrase, word for word, is not actually found in the Old Testament, which is where you would think Paul would be quoting from. Now, the principle is found. The principle is found in places like Leviticus 19, 13, for example, or Deuteronomy 24, 14, and 15. But this is actually a direct quote from the New Testament. And it's a direct quote from the words of Christ. A direct quote from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. As far as actual words, there's a parallel in Matthew, but the direct quote is Luke chapter 10 in verse 7. 
And what I think is uh, at least telling about that is that Paul calls it Scripture. He says the Scripture says, and then he quotes the New Testament Gospel of Luke, holding it in the same esteem as the Old Testament Scripture. Paul referring to it in that way. So just an interesting little tidbit at the very least for the uh, divine inspiration of the Gospel of Luke. At least apparently that's what Paul saw it as because he quotes it as Scripture itself. But the laborer deserves his wages. So honor the elders, Paul says, by first providing for them. And now I'd hasten to say here that here at Shiloh, you've always been more than generous to me, not only in the normal sort of monthly provision that you provide, but it seems to me that you're always looking for a reason to honor me in some way. You're always looking for an opportunity to show some measure of honor in some small way. And I'm extremely and supremely thankful for that, especially when I consider some of those other conversations that I've had with other people. I feel like, you know, I've been here for 12 years now, and, you know, you just don't make it in one place that long, apparently, when you talk to other people in the ministry, unless the people are like you are or you're a masochist or something. I don't know, but I'm still here and y'all are still having me. So, you know, (laughs) something's going right, I suppose. But men don't last this long in one place without it being a place that honors them in the way that the Lord would have them. So care for your elders, first by providing for them. Now, secondly, Paul tells him, there's another way that the church can care for its elders. And it can care for them by protecting them, providing for them and protecting them. That's number two, protecting them. Now, in thinking about protection, there's a couple of dimensions to this that Paul draws out. The first one is in verse 19. And you can think of this as protect your elders from spurious charges. Protect your elders from charges from anyone and everyone that might come along. Charges of wrongdoing and charges of evildoing. He says, don't admit a charge, verse 19, against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now that's an important principle that Paul is drawing out. And the Old Testament teaches this principle, the evidence of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 17, 6 says, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. It's like, look, you've got to take the death penalty seriously. You better make sure that the person charged with wrongdoing is definitely uh, guilty of it before you go putting someone to death because, you know, that's something you can't take back. I mean, you throw them in jail, you can get them out. You can't give them back the time they lost. But once you kill them, they're, they're gone, right? So take it serious. And then in Deuteronomy 19.15, It says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in any connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so what's the point according to the law of Israel? The point was, if you were going to bring a criminal charge against someone of any kind, you better have some corroboration. You better have some witnesses. And witnesses are used here. I mean, in, in ancient times, 
personal witnesses, people witnesses, would have been the primary way to corroborate something. But in modern day, you know, evidence could be anything. I mean, you could have video evidence, right? You could have audio recording evidence, picture evidence. I mean, in our day, we can have all kinds of different kinds. We have DNA evidence that can, you know, put people in places. And so we have different kinds of evidences that can serve as quote-unquote witnesses. So it doesn't necessarily have to be people witnesses, but in ancient Israel, in ancient times, when you didn't have all this cool stuff, that's what they would have needed. That's what they would have would have had. This is, in fact, the foundation of our justice system, isn't it? I mean, what does our justice system say? You're innocent until you are proven guilty. You don't have to prove your innocence. The state has to prove your guilt. And how do they do that? They do that by the evidence of two or three witnesses. It's called beyond a reasonable doubt, right? For a reason. Innocent until proven guilty. You know, part of that is because you can't prove a negative. I didn't do that. Prove it. Well, you can't prove a negative. So the state is forced to prove the positive, that you did, in fact, do it. That's kind of the principle behind it, beyond a reasonable doubt. Paul is cautioning the church here. And he's cautioning the church not to take any and every charge simply at face value. Investigate, of course. Consider it. Whatever the case might be. But you need evidence before formally bringing some kind of charge of wrongdoing against the leadership of the church. And you can imagine the kind of chaos that it would create if anyone who just decided they didn't like one of the elders, one of the leaders in the church could just come along and make any kind of accusations they wanted to and the church immediately just kicked people out. You'd have chaos everywhere. Now, in our day, there are legal ramifications depending on the kind of charges, whether or not we need to get you know, police involved and, and, and authorities involved and things like that. But the point is, just because someone makes a charge doesn't make the charge true. Consider it. Weigh it. Jesus Himself taught this as well in reference to confronting a brother in sin. He said, look, if your brother doesn't listen to you when you confront him, take one or two others with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Take people with you so that you can establish the conversation and establish the charge and make sure that everybody knows what is said and what is not said and how the conversation went. Make sure that you have people there to know what the conversation was like. If you go to your brother and he doesn't listen to you, take a few people with you in order to establish the conversation. And then after that, if your brother doesn't repent, then Jesus says, you know, go to the church and so forth and so on after that. So the first way that uh, the church can protect the elder is to protect the elder from spurious charges. Now, what happens if the elder is found to be in serious sin? The elder is actually found to be in sin. Well, the church also has the responsibility to protect him from himself and protect him from his sin and the ramifications of it. Verse 20 says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Rebuke elders who persist in sin. Don't just let it continue. Don't just say nothing. 
Don't just step back and say, well, you know, he's a good leader and maybe he's a good preacher. Maybe he's a wonderful person. He just kind of loves everybody. And so we're just going to let, you know, this particular thing, this particular sin, this particular issue. I mean, the church is, you know, the church is growing. Everything's going well. We're, we're busy. It's wonderful. And so we don't want to rock that boat. And Paul tells Timothy, no, whenever someone persists in sin, you need to be ready even to rebuke the elder who persists in sin as well. How would you rebuke an elder? How would you do such a thing? Well, I think you would follow the principles outlined in Matthew 18 that Jesus outlines. You go to them, and if they don't listen, go to them with two or three witnesses, and then you go through that disciplinary process. Eventually, maybe even coming to the point of having to remove that elder from leadership in the church if they continue to persist in unrepentant sin. And of course, there are some kinds of sins that would be grounds for immediate disqualification from leadership in the ministry. The kinds of public sins that would make uh, waste of their lives, perhaps waste of their marriage. You think of things like adultery and so forth and so on that would immediately disqualify someone from leadership in the church. But what Paul is essentially saying here is, look, I just told you that the offices should, should be considered worthy of double honor. But that doesn't give license for men to abuse the office itself. The elders are not held to a different standard than anyone else in the church. In fact, when you go back to chapter 3, what you see is that they are held in many ways to a higher standard. They're to be examples of what it's like to walk the Christian life and to walk in the Spirit. They are to exemplify those qualifications in their life so that, as it says in Hebrews 13, others can imitate their faith and that they would have a faith that is worth imitating. As I said, we've seen over the years the number of high-profile pastors and leaders who have been caught up in serious uh, sins and made shipwreck of their ministries, been removed from the pastorates and so forth and lost everything. But that is not something merely that those churches chose to do. Quite frankly, that response is something that God requires from the church in those kind of instances, to hold its leaders accountable to the qualifications that are outlined here. It says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So again, the role of elder and the office of elder does not give some special privilege. Don't let that office keep the church from rebuking a man who persists in sin any more than they would rebuke the guy who sits in the back row from his sin. That's why he concludes it with do nothing from partiality. Don't show partiality, number one, don't show partiality to the alleged victim who brings a charge properly investigated and determine whether or not these charges are true. But likewise, don't show partiality to the elder simply on the basis of the fact he's an elder. Be prepared to rebuke him if it needs to be done. So show no partiality. You know, partiality goes both ways, right? But God wants even scales, measured scales. That's the scales of justice that God desires. So there's a double protection here. First, the protection from unfair or spurious charges, and then secondly, a protection from heaping on further condemnation through a persistence of sin. 
It's like in James, when James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, uh, for you know those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so on the one hand, protect from spurious charges from others, but on the other hand, protect him from the consequence of his own unrepentant sin as well. So number one, provision. Number two, protection. And then the third and final point for tonight is patience. Another P word, patience. Verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now what is this a reference to? Don't be hasty to the laying on of hands. Well, it's a reference to the custom of ordination to the ministry. And we've even, you know, been in ordination services before. You guys were part of my ordination service, but we've gone to others before. We went down to Mount Tabor a couple of years ago for Tony Walton's, for example. Part of what happens even in today's ordination services is that they'll have the newly ordained minister, you know, have a seat or perhaps kneel uh, in front of the, the gathered church. And the members, this is after the charge is given and all that stuff, and you've all seen it, the members of the ordination council will come around and they'll each lay a hand one at a time on the man and pray over him, pray over his family, if there's a family and so forth, and pray for his church, pray for him, his family, and his ministry to that church. That's the laying on of hands. Paul mentions it again in First Timothy, or previously in 1 Timothy 4.14, don't neglect the gift you have, which was given by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And then he mentions it again in 2 Timothy 1.6, when he says, I remind you to fan the flame of the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And what he's telling the church here and what he's telling Timothy to do is to be patient with ordaining men into the ministry of the church. Remember, part of what Timothy is supposed to do is sort of set the church in order, get the church in order according to the instructions that Paul is leaving him with. And part of that's going to be to raise up elders and deacons and so forth in the church. And now Paul doubles back and says, and look, be patient while you're doing this. Be patient. Don't rush into it. He had already told him about elders back in chapter 3, verse 6. He shouldn't be a recent convert. He shouldn't be young in the faith. He should be a little more mature in the faith. Or he might come, become conceited and fall into the devil's condemnation. And then even with deacons in verse 10 of chapter 3, he said, let them be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. That's the point. Don't rush into these things. One of the besetting, I believe it to be, sins in the modern church is how quickly the church tends to place people on pedestals and place people on platforms that they simply, quite frankly, because a lot of times of their newness to the faith, because they are just simply not ready for it. You ever notice how quickly some celebrity will suddenly profess faith or prove themselves to be some sort of a conservative in Hollywood, and then all of a sudden they're making the megachurch rounds. And they wind up on stages in the megachurches all across America delivering talks and speeches and whatnot about their newfound faith. Just by way of example, I remember a couple of years ago, you, I don't know if you guys would have even paid attention to this. Some of, I mean, my kids might know exactly what I'm talking about, but... A couple of years ago, Kanye West was all the rage because he had come out as a Christian. He had come out as faithful, decided to do a gospel album. You know, as a hip-hop artist, he decided he was going to do a hip-hop gospel 
album. Now, I have been known to listen to some gospel hip hop myself. I'm not I'm, I'm very eclectic in my playlist. OK, I've got I've got acapella hymns and hip hop stuff. So I'm, I'm all over the place when I'm driving to Baton Rouge and whatnot. And people just went absolutely insane. Kanye was suddenly everywhere in Christian circles and in evangelical circles. He became overnight almost the darling of the American church. And now he's only been a couple. He came out with that album, by the way. I never did listen to it. I heard it was decent at least. But now what's happened? Well, the outcome of his life has proven that for all of the flair and for all of the, the sudden brightness, it was all apparently a show. He's gone completely off the deep end. But even back then, he was saying things that gave the discerning among us cause to pause, and people were ridiculed for trying to encourage him to find a church and sort of retreat to the background and mature himself in the faith before he put himself or tried to put himself on that kind of platform. But as always, there's always those kinds of leaders and those kinds of people out there that are more than willing for a boost in their own agenda uh, to put somebody like that in their church and their pulpits and so forth. And so that's exactly what happened. So it's not simply ill-advised to be hasty with ordination. It's not just ill-advised to quickly jump into ordaining someone. I think because of the principle here, it's actually sinful to be hasty in lifting up people to leadership without proper testing and evaluation. It is sinful to do that. Because God commands us to something better, something more, something different. Why else do I say that? Because of the end of the verse. Nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. In other words, it is an impurity to be hasty in this. If you, Paul talking to Timothy, if you by your own hastiness exacerbate the sin of an unqualified elder, you make yourself impure because of the sin of that unqualified elder. What good is your ability to lay hands on someone if you keep laying hands on people who keep falling away and disqualifying themselves? Your laying on of hands means nothing. It's become worthless. So it's a serious task. And much care should be taken before it's pursued. And by the way, he throws... He, He's talking about impurity and everybody kind of agrees. Verse 23 is almost like an aside. Oh, by the way, don't, don't drink just water. Throw a little wine in there for your stomach. You know, it was used as a medicine. So he's like, but by the way, speaking of impurity, you know, throw some wine in your water for some medicine. And then he says, the sins of some people are conspicuous. In other words, they're seen, they're noticeable. You can see them. The sins of some people are noticeable. Going before them to judgment. In other words... The sins of some people, so in the context of raising up elders, the sins of some people are going to come in the room before they do. They, they come in the room like Bozo the Clown's feet do. They, they hit the floor before he does, right? Everybody knows them already. And then the sins of others, he says, appear later. What's the later? It's after the assessment. Some people, you know their sins up front. Others, you go through a period of testing and a period of assessment and their sins become known. But likewise, good works 
are conspicuous in some. They're noticeable. They're seen. Everybody knows when someone has a good reputation. But even those that are not conspicuous or are not seen, not always noticeable, they can't remain hidden for long. In other words, when you assess, you'll see and you'll know. Some people you'll be able to tell immediately this person is disqualified. Other people, you're going to have to assess them. You're going to have to test them. And that will bring to light whether or not they are worthy. So take the time, Timothy. It actually serves and honors the elders of the church when you take time to evaluate men for the ministry. That's a third way that you can care for elders. So how can the church serve its elders? It can serve them by provision. It can serve them by protection. And thirdly, it can serve them by patience in ever lifting them up in the first place. Let's pray. So Father, we pray that you would help us. We know that this is your expectation of your church. This is your expectation for the leadership of the church. And then more broadly, this is your expectation for how the church should handle itself and should handle its own appointment of leaders. And so we pray that as we move forward together, as always, that not only would each individual heart here be informed and changed by the teaching of your word, but that this church would be conformed more into the kind of church that you would have it to be for the days ahead. So we pray this blessing over us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.